Welcome to PQ Doc on Call, a podcast dedicated to current and aspiring intensivists. I'm Pradeep Kumar. And I'm Rahul Damania, and we are coming to you from Children's Healthcare of Atlanta, Emory University School of Medicine. Welcome to our episode of a three-year-old girl presenting with cough and difficulty breathing. Here's the case presented by Rahul. A previously healthy three-year-old girl presents an outside hospital for difficulty breathing. She has had a two-day history of cough that was worse at night, as well as congestion. She's been afebrile. She has no history of emesis, recent travel, or any exposure to toxins or irritants. Initially, she received steroids, albuterol, and oxygen, but due to continued worsening of breathing and hypoxia, she was transferred to our ICU for initiation of high-flow nasal cannula. She has no allergies and her immunizations are up to date. There's a strong family history of asthma as well as atopic dermatitis. Mother also noted that the patient has a history of coughing episodes while playing outside with their siblings. When she presented to the hospital, her initial vital signs were notable for a temperature of 37.9, heart rate of 100, blood pressure 97 over 73, tachypnea with a respiratory rate of 49, a pulse ox of 98% on 15 liters high flow nasal cannula at 60% FiO2, and a normal weight for age. On physical exam, the child is awake and playful. She is tachycardic, has no murmurs. She has subcostal, intercostal, and suprasternal retractions and bilateral symmetric chest expansion. The air entry is decreased with diffuse wheezing bilaterally. There is atopic dermatitis seen in the flexor areas of the elbows and knees, and the rest of her physical exam was normal. She had no hepatosplenomegaly. Her viral panel was positive for human metanumovirus and negative for SARS-CoV-2, and her chest x-ray showed atelectasis superimposed upon viral pneumonitis versus multifocal bronchopneumonia. There was no evidence of a paranemonic effusion or pneumothorax. Her CBC and electrolyte panel were normal. So Rahul, to summarize key elements from this case, this three-year-old girl has cough and congestion, increased work of breathing and difficulty breathing, hypoxia, no fever or rash, no recent ingestions or exposure to tobacco smoke. All of this bring up a concern for lower airway obstructive process, most likely acute asthma. Now let's transition into some history and physical exam components of this case. Rahul, what are the key history features in this child who presents with increased work of breathing? This is a classic case of respiratory distress that may actually progress to respiratory failure. This patient has cough and congestion, difficulty breathing, and she has a history that suggests a very strong atopic history, both family and personal history. Rahul, can you highlight any red flag symptoms on the physical exam in this three-year-old child? Absolutely. So right off the bat, this patient has increased work of breathing. She has subcostal, intercostal, and suprasternal retractions. Important to note, as a negative, there is no nasal flaring, head bobbing, or grunting, but these can be terminal signs of respiratory failure. This patient also has 
decreased air entry, and diffuse bilateral wheezing. Pertinently, she does not have any subcutaneous emphysema on the palpation of the chest. And she also has no crackles, no hepatomegaly, and no altered mental status. So these are all pertinent negatives for us to uh, keep in mind when we are discussing red flag physical exam components. So one important aspect which I really want to bring up to you all as listeners is that not all respiratory distress arises within the respiratory tract. And we also saw that when we discussed pertinent negatives. Important physical exam features to note in any infant or toddler with increased work of breathing is to really palpate for hepatomegaly, as well as listen very carefully for these fine bilateral inspiratory crackles. Presence of hepatomegaly or bilateral crackles should raise concern for myocarditis or a pediatric presentation of heart failure. This is very true, especially in newborns, because when they present with respiratory distress, always make a habit to feel for femoral pulses because you want to assess whether or not this patient has an undiagnosed coarctation of the aorta. Acidosis, intracranial hemorrhage, foreign body, panic attacks, these are all important differentials to have in your problem representation of respiratory distress. So to continue with our case, Pradeep, do you mind just highlighting some important labs and diagnostics? Uh, Rahul, in this patient, the CBC and the basic metabolic panel were completely normal. Her respiratory viral panel was positive for human metanumovirus and was uh, negative for SARS-CoV-2. Her chest radiograph showed atelectasis superimposed upon viral pneumonitis versus multifocal bronchopneumonia. All right, listeners. So to summarize, we have a three-year-old with acute respiratory distress progressing to failure. She has wheezing, hypoxemia, and this was all after a two-day prodrome of cough and congestion. Rahul, let's start with a multiple-choice question. A 15-year-old teenager with known history of asthma presents to the emergency department in severe respiratory distress, increased work of breathing, hypoxemia, and diffuse wheezing. Of the following, the presentation that would most likely require intubation in this teenager would include A, inability to talk in complete sentences, B, a blood gas that shows hypocapnia and mild respiratory alkalosis, C, the presence of pulsus paradoxus, or D, deteriorating mental status. Rahul, this is an excellent question, and the correct answer is D, deteriorating mental status. While choice A, inability to talk in complete sentences, as well as choice C, presence of pulsus paradoxus in a patient with acute asthma correlate with the severity of acute asthma, those choices by themselves are not indications for intubation. In early asthma, in a patient who's tachypneic and breathing hard, the blood gas should have hypocapnia and a mild respiratory alkalosis. I would be more worried about a normal gas or a rising PCO2 in a patient who presents with acute asthma. So just for our listeners, indications for intubation and mechanical ventilation in a child with asthma should be based on clinical judgment and include cardiac or respiratory arrest, severe hypoxia as well as deterioration in child's mental status, or any other data points that suggest that the patient is trending in the wrong direction. Progressive exhaustion, despite maximal therapy, 
constitutes a relative indication for intubation on a case-by-case basis. The traditional rule that respiratory acidosis dictates intubation has become outdated. And I would like to highlight that when you have a patient who is going to have somnolence in the setting of hypercapnia, this is a late manifestation of respiratory failure. Raul, excellent summary there. Can you comment on the commonly used clinical respiratory score or CRS to look at the severity of patients with acute asthma? That's a great question. And when you look at the data, there are many well-validated scores, but we're going to be highlighting the clinical respiratory score or the CRS. The CRS is a tool that was developed based on the National Asthma Education Program's guidelines for the diagnosis and management of asthma. The CRS contains six equally weighted variables. It uses both objective and subjective criteria when evaluating a child with asthma to calculate a score. A CRS assessment requires a member of the care team, usually the respiratory therapist, to calculate a respiratory rate and record the room air oxygen saturation using a pulse oximeter. It also requires auscultation lung field, assessing use of accessory muscles, mental status, and the child's color. These are all major components of the CRS score. Respiratory rate scores are differentiated by age-related normals, and each of these six categories are then categorized as mild, moderate, or severe distress. And just for our listeners, the score is going to be calculated from 0 to 12, and the higher the score, the more respiratory distress your patient who you are assessing has. The CRS tool is a reliable asthma severity scoring tool for pediatric patients presenting with acute asthma exacerbation, especially when utilized across care teams. That means that you can utilize this both in the emergency room, the floor, as well as the pediatric ICU. And this was well validated in the Journal of Asthma published in 2021. So Rahul, what are the risk factors for severe acute asthma? In a review by Werner and colleagues published in CHESS 2001, risk factors for acute severe asthma were classified in the following buckets, medical factors, psychosocial factors, and ethnic factors. In a study by Dr. Grunwell and colleagues published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine in 2018, it was reported that risk factors for PICU admission with or without intubation included hospitalization in the past 12 months, a history of pneumonia, chronic asthma severity on high-dose inhaled corticosteroids, having a parent, especially a father with asthma, living in a region with a high burden of poverty and of black race. And so this really validates that point of the psychosocial and ethnic factors. In a more recent study by Dr. Grunwell and colleagues published in 2021 in the Journal of Allergy and clinical immunology practice, school-aid children at risk for asthma exacerbation were studied. The authors identified four latent classes with differing demographic features, sensitization and type 2 inflammatory markers, prior exacerbation severity, and healthcare utilization, as well as lung function, and its relation to asthma. They found that children with exacerbation-prone asthma were present in each of these aforementioned latent classes. The most strongly represented in the latent classes 
were patients who had multiple sensitizations as well as airflow limitation. Rahul, I think one thing that is very frequently tested on our pediatric critical boards is the cardiopulmonary interactions of uh, a disease process in the PICU. Can you explain the pathophysiology of acute asthma in terms of lung mechanics, gas exchange, and cardiopulmonary interactions? This is a great question, and I think that this can be a podcast in and of itself, but let's try to break it down. Acute asthma, there is inflammation that is triggered by respiratory viruses, cigarette smoke, air pollution, as well as allergens. And you have this inflammatory cascade with multiple cytokines, namely IL-4, IL-5, IL-8, and IL-13. Now, this cytokine inflammation is amplified by increased production of IgE by B cells. And remember that IL-4 is one of the cytokines that promotes class switch to IgE. There is bronchospasm due to airway hyperresponsiveness. And finally, there is hypersecretion of mucus plugging the airways. And as we will see, this causes a very important concept, which is hypoxemia related to VQ mismatch. Now, airway obstruction really leads to hyperinflation with resultant dead space ventilation. In fact, hyperinflation results in conversion of lung segments from West Zone 3 and 2 to West Zone 1, thus increasing the VQ mismatch. The increase in respiratory rates in response to impaired ventilation results in dynamic hyperinflation and air trapping due to prolonged expiratory times. So please remember that asthma is an obstructive lung disorder and thus you get air trapping. Hyperinflation leads to flattened diaphragms, which we commonly see on our chest x-ray when we evaluate these patients. It also becomes now very inefficient for optimal respiratory function because you have impaired diaphragmatic motion and diaphragmatic fatigue. This diaphragmatic fatigue is exacerbated by acidosis, hypoxia, and dehydration. Let's go ahead and go into a little bit more with the VQ mismatch. Remember that mucus plugging results in VQ mismatch due to atelectasis and intrapulmonary shunting. Your pulmonary vascular resistance is now going to be very elevated due to increased lung volumes and this milieu of acidosis and hypoxia in the lung. Adding to the VQ mismatch, when you have high pulmonary vascular resistance, you're going to decrease your denominator, i.e. your blood flow in the alveolar capillary subunit is going to decrease. Use of albuterol can further worsen VQ mismatch. In spontaneously breathing children with acute severe asthma, the pleural pressures can be as negative as negative 35. And remember, just to give you context, your normal pleural pressure is around negative 5 to negative 10. The very negative pleural pressure increases the left ventricular afterload because now you have increased transmural stress. This also favors the transcapillary filtration of edema into the air spaces, resulting in high risk of pulmonary edema. So you have hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, acidosis, and increased lung volumes. And as a result, you are going to now have not only left ventricular afterload that is going to be increased, but also right ventricular afterload due to the increased pulmonary vascular resistance. The last 
concept, which I really want to touch on, Pradeep, in this discussion is pulses paradoxes. Now, please remember that pulses paradoxes is not specific for acute asthma. It can be seen in various other non-pulmonary pathologies, such as cardiac tamponade, pulmonary embolism, and even tension pneumothoraces. Pulses paradoxes refers to a fall in arterial systolic blood pressure with inspiration of greater than 10 millimeters of mercury. This is an exaggerated response to inspiration. So why does this happen? Well, hyperinflation leads to expansion of vascular beds. And during inspiration, the increased right ventricular preload leads to the septum bowing into the left ventricle and the left ventricular outflow tract, decreasing LV preload and exacerbating the normal physiologic drop in blood pressure with inspiration. And remember, normally you have a less than 10 millimeters of mercury drop when you have inspiration. So the LV preload may be further compromised by increased pulmonary vascular bed compliance and increased left ventricular afterload. And so this is a high-level summary of the cardiopulmonary interactions in acute asthma exacerbations. So Pradeep, turning to you, as you think about this case, what would be on your differential if you had a patient that came in similar to our patient, respiratory distress with wheezing? Rahul, that's an excellent question. I think the first thing I want to say is all that wheezes is not asthma. I'm especially very, very careful of making a diagnosis of asthma in very small infants and small children. Now, the first thing you need to think about is a foreign body, especially if the child has unilateral wheezing, mom gives you a history of choking, coughing while eating or playing, that should raise the suspicion for a foreign body. Non-respiratory causes of respiratory distress, such as intracranial hemorrhage, airway obstruction, air leaks, acidosis, panic attacks, cardiac diseases, especially myocarditis or congestive heart failure, uh, should also be considered when you're considering any patient with respiratory distress and even wheezing. A detailed history and physical exam with pertinent imaging will help with the diagnosis in the above conditions. That's a great point. Wheezing in asthmatics occurs due to turbulent airflow in the intrathoracic airways, and this can be a bilateral process. So I agree with you that not all that wheezes is asthma. If wheezing is asymmetric, caregivers should consider the diagnosis of foreign body, pneumothorax, unilateral mucus plugging, or even atelectasis. Remember that the degree of wheezing does not correlate with asthma severity. If there is no airflow, no wheezing will be heard, and patient may have a silent chest, which is an ominous sign. If a patient who previously had loud wheezing, but now has worsening work of breathing, a reduction in wheezing may be a harbinger of respiratory failure. So Pradeep, let's go ahead and close our podcast today by talking about the diagnostic and management approach. Let's start with the diagnostic approach. How do you approach these patients? Rahul, really in acute asthma, you really don't need a lot of uh, investigations, okay? Some may not even get a chest radiograph or even a viral panel. Now, chest radiograph may be indicated if the clinical exam suggests an air leak, such as crepitus or asymmetry of chest rise. What is really important in an asthmatic is frequent, repeated, assessments at the bedside after any intervention is made. 
close observation of respiratory effort, pulse oximetry, and alertness serve as a continuous clinical correlate of pulmonary gas exchange. Now, coming to blood gas, typically in early asthma, we see hypocarbia with mild respiratory alkalosis. If patient clinically worsens, one may see an initially a normal PCO2 followed by hypercarbia and even hypoxemia. Routine blood gases are not indicated in acute severe asthma and one single abnormal blood gas should not be an indicator to decide the need for intubation and mechanical ventilation. As patient worsens, one may see a mixed picture of respiratory acidosis with metabolic acidosis. Now coming to a measurement of serum lactates, serum lactates should not be routinely obtained in acute severe asthma as some degree of lactic acidosis is common in acute asthma due to use of albuterol and adrenergic stimulation. Type B lactic acidosis, this is the lactic acidosis that is associated with adrenergic stimulation and occurring with normal oxygen delivery is very common. And there's a good paper by Mert et al. in PCCM 2012. Now, routine BMPs, CBCs are also not required in the management of acute asthma. Hypokalemia may be seen due to continuous albuterol use. If there is severe dehydration due to insensible losses and decreased PO intake, the BUN may be elevated. If a CBC is obtained, there may be leukocytosis from stress or use of steroids. Rarely, eosinophil count may be elevated in atopic patients. So Rahul, to close this podcast, can you talk about the management of acute severe asthma prior to requiring intubation in the PICU? Absolutely. And I think I'll first off say uh, that you are using the up-to-date terminology. Status asthmaticus is now replaced by the term acute severe asthma and is defined as an asthma attack unresponsive to repeated doses of beta agonists and requiring hospital admission. Critical asthma is defined as acute severe asthma, which requires intensive care admission. Near fatal asthma is defined as critical asthma that requires endotracheal intubation and mechanical ventilation. General principles of good pediatric ICU care should be followed. Starting out with oxygen, albuterol, and steroids, I want to really convey that these are the initial mainstays of therapy in acute severe asthma. Let's break each of these down. Oxygen is going to be used for hypoxemia, hypoxia, as well as increased pulmonary vascular resistance. The patients can be given nebulizer treatments and these can be continuous with your oxygen. Fluids are also going to be important because patients with acute severe asthma may have dehydration, as we mentioned in our diagnostic workup, and fluids may also help loosen the mucus in the airways. Corticosteroids using IV methylprednisolone at 0.5 to 1 mg per kg per dose every 6 hours, followed by enteral steroids when the patient is able to take PO, should definitely be one of the key mainstays of management. Continuous steroids for five to seven days, and it's not necessary to continue home-inhaled corticosteroids when the patient is acutely ill and is receiving systemic steroids in the PICU. 
Albuterol nebulization is initially used over 20 minutes at a dosage of 0.05 to 0.15 mg per kilo. Less than 10% of the inhaled drug is deposited in the lungs. After initial series of three albuterol treatments, continuous albuterol nebulization is started at a dose range of 0.15 to 0.45 mg per kg per hour, so a little bit of a higher dose with a maximum of 20 mg per hour. Albuterol is a 50-50 mixture of R-albuterol and S-albuterol. These are two different enantiomers of albuterol. The R-albuterol is also known as levalbuterol, and it is the enantiomer which causes bronchodilation, whereas the S-albuterol is the inert form and may contribute to adverse events. We do not recommend the use of levalbuterol, as there is no advantage of its use over albuterol. Levalbuterol doesn't cause less tachycardia than racemic albuterol and continues to have a higher cost compared to our albuterol. In patients who do not improve with albuterol or have poor air entry to begin with, I typically recommend starting IV terbutaline. Typically, the dose of IV terbutaline is 5 to 10 micrograms per kilo as a bolus dose, followed by an infusion dosed at 0.1 to 4 micrograms per kilo per minute. I typically do not use IV epinephrine due to its greater affinity for the beta-1 receptor compared to terbutaline, and IV epinephrine will be used in very refractory cases. So just to summarize, I really want to highlight the importance of airway breathing and circulation, which is under the auspices of good PICU care, and in parallel, we're optimizing bronchodilation and anti-inflammatory effects. Pradeep, do you mind giving some other therapies that we use for asthma? Yes. The other thing that we typically use along with albirol is nebulized ipratropium bromide. or It's an anticholinergic. Typically, we know it by the name Atrovent. It's used as 250 to 500 microgram doses initially every 20 minutes in combination with albirol and then can be given every six hours. It mediates bronchodilatation by inhibition of cholinergic-mediated bronchospasm. Now, compared to atropine, ipratropium bromide does not cross the central blood-brain barrier, nor does it affect the ciliary beating and mucociliary clearance. Now, magnesium sulfate is an adjunct to steroids and albuterol. It relaxes the bronchial smooth muscle as it is a calcium antagonist. The typical dose we use is 25 to 40 milligram per kilo, infused over 20 to 30 minutes. The clinical response is typically seen within minutes. Helium oxygen mixtures, the exact role of, for this is unclear, and studies are actually mixed. Helium oxygen may enhance the delivery of nebulized albirol to lower parts of the pulmonary tree in some patients. The greater the need for fractional oxygen, less effective is the helium oxygen mixture. Now, ketamine has been used as an adjunctive therapy that causes bronchodilatation by NMDA antagonism in the airway smooth muscles. Although ED studies have shown no benefit, it may be used prior for uh, tolerance of NIPPV, especially uh, putting a BiPAP mask on an anxious teenager. Ketamine would be very helpful. Remember, ketamine is going to add to the tachycardia as well as hypertension 
that is already seen in acute asthma due to use of other adrenergic stimulants. It may also lead to increased airway secretions and siluria. Now, non-invasive ventilation, either in the form of bilevel positive pressure or high-flow nasal cannula, has been used successfully in acute asthma. Use of ketamine or dexmedetomidine can help with the patient cooperation when using such devices. The use of high-flow uh, nasal cannula has been well studied and a paper has been published by Ving et al. in Pediatric Emergency Care 2012 and has shown to reduce the need for intubation in the pediatric acute respiratory insufficiency, although not significant reduction in the need for ET tube endotracheal intubation for patients with severe asthma. We will discuss the use of NIPPV as well as invasive ventilation in part two of acute severe asthma management. Rahul, what are some of the key objective takeaways from our today's podcast? This was a jam-packed episode. So let's go ahead and summarize the two key learning points. Patients with acute severe asthma admitted to the pediatric ICU should be aggressively managed using oxygen, IV steroids, albuterol, atrovent, and if required, intravenous terbutaline. Remember that all that wheezes is not asthma. So make sure you have diagnostic accuracy before proceeding down this management route. Adjunctive therapies such as magnesium, ketamine, and helium oxygen mixtures may be used in selected patients. I also want to make a point that when patients are admitted to the pediatric ICU with acute severe asthma, consultation and collaboration with pediatric pulmonology is essential for good transition of care. The patient's work of breathing, pulse oximetry, and mental status can serve as continuous clinical correlates of pulmonary gas exchange. And as a correlative point here, we do want to make sure we keep reassessing these patients after we give them these therapeutics. This concludes our podcast on acute severe asthma. We hope you found value in a short case-based podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback, subscribe, and place a review on our podcast. Please visit our website, pqdoconcall.org, which showcases our episodes as well as our Doc on Call management cards. PQ Doc on Call is co-hosted by me, Pradeep Kamath, and my co-host, Dr. Rahul Dimania. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you. Thank you.